passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. We are going to be in Romans. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3. Uh, We're going to be looking at a huge chunk of Scripture this morning. Romans chapter 3, verse 21, all the way through Romans chapter 5, verse 11. So we got a a lot to cover this morning. Uh, The story of Christmas, and we're obviously just four or five days away from Christmas now. Uh, The story of Christmas, uh, God coming to earth, is essential for us to understand the gospel. There's this quote from... J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God. I, I uh, run to it every single um, December as, as preparing for, uh, for the Christmas year. I, I love what he says. He puts it this way. If the immortal Son of God did really submit to taste death, it is not strange that such a death should have saving significance for a doomed race. Once we grant that Jesus was divine— it becomes unreasonable to find difficulty in any of this. It is all of a piece and hangs together completely. The incarnation or the Christmas story is in itself an unfathomable mystery, but it makes sense of everything else that the New Testament contains. In other words, the story of Christmas is essential for us to understand the gospel. And there's probably no greater or clearer description of the gospel than a portion of our text this morning. So uh, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, 27. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, referred to this as the chief point of the whole Bible. And that's, uh, that's quite the claim, isn't it? But at the same time, I can't really uh, disagree with him. If you're familiar with Romans, you're probably familiar with the importance of this passage. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This passage builds on the passages that come before it, the chapters that come before it. The first two and a half chapters of Romans have been building toward this moment. So let's go ahead and take a moment to remind ourselves of Paul's message to the church in Rome uh, this morning. So the letter of Romans is is a, a letter that deals with righteousness. It's all about righteousness. It, it talks about what does it mean to be righteous. And, and, and perhaps more, more specifically, it deals with this insurmountable gap between God's righteousness and our lack of righteousness, our unrighteousness as humanity. In other words, Paul is saying that there is this massive disconnect between the goodness of God and the lack of goodness as humanity. Paul begins his letter, he gives us a preview of his chief concern in Romans. He says this in verses 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. In other words, what Paul is saying is that in a way that we have not yet seen, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel reveals the goodness of God. Now, that's not to say that the, God, the goodness of God is, isn't on display before Jesus. 
It's a terrifying fact for us to consider, but in reality, before Christmas, the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, is primarily revealed in the wrath of God. Notice what Paul says just a verse later in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he says, The righteousness of God is revealed through the gospel. Notice the word he uses in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness surpass the truth. So this is the message of the first two and a half chapters of Romans. God's righteousness is revealed in his wrath against unrighteous humanity. And this is true of your neighbor who lives down the street who swears like a sailor. This is true of that person that you're still friends with on Facebook. You don't really know why, and they've just gone off the deep end. This is also true with you, as we see in Romans chapter 2. That's the message of Romans chapter 2. It's not just those out there who have an issue with sinfulness. It's also within each and every one of us. Now, each year as the church approaches Christmas, uh, December 25th, we celebrate Advents. And we've all likely heard this term before. Pastor Stephen used it as he gave us uh, our call to worship this morning. But do, do we know what the word Advent means? The word Advent just means coming. It means arrival. Something is coming. Something has arrived. And so advertisers will oftentimes talk about the advent of a new product or the advent of a new technology, something that we should have this great expectation for that is about to arrive and it will change our lives. And the same thing is true at Christmas. As the church draws near to Christmas throughout the centuries, the church has used the weeks leading up to Christmas as a time for us to reflect upon Jesus' advent, upon his coming, upon his arrival. But not just looking back, it also is meant to create this expectation looking forward, this expectation not just in Jesus' first coming, but also in his second coming. Can you imagine what Jesus' advent, his his coming, would be like according to the first couple chapters of Romans without Christmas? Without Christmas, without the first advent, the second advent, or the return, the coming of Christ would not be a day of great joy, a great expectancy. It would be a day of wrath. Paul says, as he's writing to the church in Colossae, Colossians chapter 3, on account of unrighteousness, the wrath of God is coming. Without Christmas, Advent means wrath. This is the story of humanity before Christmas. Without the advent of the Son at Christmas. There is no hope for humanity. This is summed up very clearly in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, right before our text this morning, Paul is quoting from all of these different places in the Old Testament, one passage after another, after another, after another, building on one another to point out to each and every one of us the brokenness of our hearts. Notice what he says, starting in verse 10. 
None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouths is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their path are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And as Pastor Stephen shared a couple weeks ago as, as we are going through these verses, Paul is going to great lengths to point out that this isn't just a problem about people that are out there. But it's a problem within each and every one of us. A week or two ago, I read a quote from a Russian novelist, uh, Ivan Turgenev. He, he once said this, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. In other words, what he's saying is that I consider, if I consider myself to be a good person, a, a good human, which, which oftentimes I do, and I see the wickedness of my own heart, I can't even fathom the wickedness of those that I consider to be bad because my own state, my own heart is bad enough as it is. I don't know what the heart of a bad person is like, but I know what the, uh, the heart of a good person is like, and it is pretty bad. And that's the picture of humanity that we see in Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 2, and the first half of Romans chapter 3. On account of unrighteousness, the wrath of God is coming. But then we get to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 gives us the two, I think, two most beautiful words in the Bible. But now. But now. That's the story of Christmas. It's summed up in those two words. Humanity was headed on a path of wrath and destruction, but now. Christ has come. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The story of Christmas, the story of the, the manger, declares a different story than the fate that was awaiting humanity with those two words, but now. God's rescue plan it has begun. That's the story of Christmas. The angels, they're declaring to the shepherds in the fields. But now God has intervened into human history. In every page, in every word of the Christmas story, God is declaring a new plan, a new picture, a new image of his righteousness. God has intervened into human history in order to save a wayward Humanity, And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in, in Romans chapter 3, 21, all the way through Romans chapter 5, verse 11. As I mentioned, we're going to be covering a lot of ground uh, this morning. I don't know how I got to be so lucky that Pastor Stephen and Pastor Chris, they both had to talk about wrath. I get to talk about the gospel. But I am very excited to, to look at our text this morning. We're going to look at these uh, these two chapters, really, uh, through through the lens of those two words, but now. And as we consider it, it really just breaks down or can be summarized into three different words. 
Okay, so but now can be summarized in three different words in our text. Justification, faith, and hope. Justification, faith, and hope. So that's going to be our roadmap for our journey through our text this morning. But let's pray uh, before we jump in to Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. Would you pray with me? God, in in this season of busyness, we confess that that all too often we miss the meaning of Advent. And and, uh, I know this is true of me. Rather than spending this season in preparation for the coming of your Son, the return of Jesus, all too often I spend it caught up in preparation for meals or preparation for family gatherings, preparation for making sure that I have the right gifts under the tree. God, we ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on you this morning. Help us to be focused upon you, Jesus, that we would see you through this beautiful, magnificent text. Holy Spirit, we believe that you're the one who is able to transform lives. We ask that you would do that in our midst this morning. That you would transform our hearts. That you would transform our lives to make us more and more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so I mentioned that this text uh, really summed up in in three different words. Justification is our first one this morning, verses 21 through 26. Justification, it's a a big church word uh, that we oftentimes hear in the church, oftentimes use in the church. What is it? Well, justification basically just means making us right before God. What is it that makes us right before God? Remember, Romans is talking about this massive gap between God's goodness, his righteousness, and our lack of righteousness, our sinfulness. So justification is the process about how do we bridge that gap? How do we get from where we are to where God is? And how do we bridge that gap? Now, throughout human history, people have tried to find ways to justify themselves in order to make ourselves right before God. Even if we don't use that language of justifying ourselves or or making us right before God, even people who don't even necessarily believe in a God will try to make themselves right in the face of God. Many people believe in justification by works or being good enough to get into God's presence. So in other words, if if I do enough good in my life and that outweighs the bad, then I will be able to enter into God's presence. I bridge that gap. Other people believe in justification through religion. The the more religious things that I do, the more often I attend church, the more times that I read my Bible, the more times that I pray, the more people that I'm around, the more events that I go to that are held by the church, the more Bible knowledge that I have, that will help me get into God's presence, to be able to stand in his presence. It's justification by religion. One theologian used a a term that I've really just kind of latched onto as he was describing what he thinks is the most common view of of justification today in our culture. It's very similar to justification by works, but it's slightly different, and I love the way that he just puts this spin on it. He refers to it as as justification by death. Justification by death. Our culture believes that the default state of humanity is heaven. Everyone is bound for heaven, is is going to heaven no matter what. In fact, you you have to be really, 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 really bad in order to lose it. 
It's not something that you have to earn or, or gain. It's something that is taken away from you, but only if you're really, really, really bad. Because I look at myself and I say, hey, you know what? I'm a, I'm a pretty reasonable person, and, and why wouldn't God want me to stand in his presence? Why wouldn't God want me to make it to heaven? And so this question, how can I stand before God, is oftentimes seen as a ridiculous question in today's culture. Because why wouldn't I be able to stand in God's presence? It's justification not by works or what I'm doing, that the good is outweighing the bad. It's not justification through my religion or knowing enough about God. It's simply justification by the fact that, well, I didn't screw up that bad. And then when I pass away, God will let me into his presence. What does the Bible say about justification? Well, that's what we see here in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Over a thousand years before the time of Jesus, God rescued the people of Israel out of slavery to Egypt. And as a part of their rescue, God gave them the law. He gave them the commandments, uh, statutes on how they were to live as his people. And included in that law were a number of different stipulations on sacrifice. Humans were sinful. They were unable to enter into God's presence because of that sin. And in order to show the awfulness of their sin, blood was required. This is a part of the law. But these sacrifices, contrary to what oftentimes is seen, these, contra- these, these sacrifices were never meant to make the people right in God's eyes. People began to believe that, that that if I do these things, it will make me right in God's eyes. But they were supposed to point to something greater. They were meant to point to a, a salvation that could not be achieved through the law, a justification that wouldn't be brought about by animal sacrifice. The Old Testament is pointing toward this day. It's filled with these echoes of the day when God will make a way for humanity to dwell in his presence once again. And that's what we see with the Christmas story. The Christmas story is is God saying, humanity, you can't dwell in my presence, and so I'm going to come and dwell in yours. John chapter 1, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. At Christmas, at long last, we see what what the law has been waiting for, what the prophets have been waiting for, what they've been whispering about, that the righteousness of God has finally come, not through the law, but in a person, in the person of Jesus. Remember our working definition of righteousness. This is God's goodness, but hold on. It would be wrong for us to conclude here that that Paul is focused on the righteousness of God just being, uh, we become aware of it in the person of Jesus. That that God has now pulled back the curtain. He's shown us what righteousness, what goodness looks like in the person of Jesus. That's true. But Paul has a greater concern in mind here. 
He's not just concerned about the righteousness of God. He's also primarily concerned about how do we, who over here, how do we get that righteousness that has now been revealed in who God is? And so when Paul is saying that the righteousness of God has now been made manifest apart from the law, he's saying that the struggle of all of humanity to attain this righteousness that God demands, that God requires of each and every one of us, it has now been found. The way for us to attain that righteousness has now been found. It's not, a, it's not found in the law. It's found apart from the law, just as the law and the prophets have been whispering about all of this time. How do we obtain this righteousness, this goodness that is required to enter into God's presence? Well, Paul tells us it's a gift. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we purchase. It's not something that comes with an IOU. It's not something that God says, okay, put it on a payment plan so you can balance accounts, you can pay it off later. It is simply a gift. Because the heart of God the Father is gracious beyond measure. That's important for us to note. Look at verse 24 closely. Who is the one who gives the gift of justification to those who believe? And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul tells us that this gift of justification is a gift of his grace. Okay? But, but who is the he in verse 24? Who's the his? We have to go back a, another verse to verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Don't miss the heart of the Father here. The heart the Father has for wayward sinners. It's not as though God the Father is, is coerced. He's, he's forced into loving humanity because of the overly gracious Son. No. There, there's no gap between the Father's heart, the Father's desire to see sinners saved, and the Son's heart. The son's desire to do whatever is necessary, whatever his father has planned, including going to the cross, in order to make that possible. This gift of grace for you comes straight from the heart of God the Father. And it's at the cross that we see this intersection of God's justice and God's love, and they meet in this mysterious, amazing, profound way, they meet together. And that's the, the focus of verses 25 through 26. God put Jesus Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
So Paul is telling us that this is the Father's heart, the Father's desire, his longing, the thing that he wants the most is to bring wayward sinners back. 1 Timothy tells us that he doesn't want anyone to perish, that his, this is his heart, his, his longing through and through, but there's a problem. There's a problem facing God. Because of the rebellion of humanity, God's justice is pitted against his love. God loves his creation. He longs for his creation to be restored to its its former glory, its, its former majesty. But as it stands, his creation is at war with him. And as a just God, as a good God, he can't abide sin. He can't abide rebellion in his presence. He just can't forgive and forget. And yet up until this moment, thousands of years ago, up until the moment of the cross, that's exactly what God has been doing. God has been forgiving and seemingly forgetting the sins of people like Abraham uh, of Isaac, of Jacob, of, of, of Adam and Eve before that, uh, of Noah, that there's been no sacrifice offered to pay for their sins. Our sin has put God in this impossible situation. Will his justice win out or will his love win out? Notice what Paul is saying here in these verses. This is so powerful. He says, because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. So that's the problem that is facing God. That God has passed over sins. That these are sins that haven't been paid for but people that are now in heaven with him. And God's righteousness is in question because of the sinfulness of humanity. Jesus shows us that there is another way. God offers up his son as a propitiation, which is just a a big word that refers to a sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God. He offers his son up as a a sacrifice, as a sign of his, his commitment to his own goodness, his own justice, his own righteousness but also his, his unfathomable love for sinners like you and me. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who comes to faith in Jesus. Christmas is the beginning of the story of justification. It's the beginning of the story of justification, of making us right with God. Without Christmas, it's not possible for us to enter into God's presence. But at Christmas, God begins at long last his plan. That's our first word, justification. It's incredible news, but we haven't answered the, the crucial question for us. We, we understand, may understand the objective reality of what God has done at the cross, at what God has started with Christmas, and yet there's still a question that remains, how do we make that our own? How do we make the righteousness of God, the sacrifice of Jesus, how do we make that our own? 
Paul isn't just talking about God pulling back the curtain and showing what righteousness looks like. Like, here's the example of what you should have been. No, he's, he's made a way for us to enter into his presence. And that is our second word this morning. He's talking about faith. Faith is the key to making God's righteousness our own. This is the rest of Romans chapter 3, 27 through the end of the chapter. It's, it's the focus of all of Romans chapter 4. Justification is a gift of God. And, it, and the way we receive it isn't by trying to earn it from him through religiosity or, or through works, but through faith. And to prove his point, Paul brings up the example of Abraham. I'm sure uh, many, if not all of us, know Abraham. Genesis 12 tells us that Abraham was chosen by God to be a special vessel that God was going to use to, to bless every nation on earth. And this is a, a promise that is, is primarily, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Abraham later becomes the father of the Jewish people. And so all of the people of Israel begin to refer to themselves as the children of Abraham because as his descendants, they are descendants of the promise. They've received the promises that God has made to Abraham as his descendants. And as I consider it, I think Abraham is, is like the perfect picture of what faith looks like. Just consider his story for a few seconds. God calls him. But God doesn't, doesn't just call someone who's already following him. When God calls Abraham, he doesn't know God. In fact, he doesn't want anything to do with God. Joshua, the book of Joshua, tells us that he's a pagan moon worshiper. When God calls him to follow him. Tells us that, that in this moment when God calls him, he has nothing to do with God. God reveals himself to Abraham, he tells him to leave behind everything. He says, leave your family or your father's family, leave your people, leave your country, leave all of that behind. Just take your wife and I want you to follow me. But, but by the way, I'm not going to tell you where we're going. I'll just tell you when we get there. And, and so follow me. And if you do, then, then I'm going to make you a great nation that's quite the promise that God makes to a guy who's in his mid-70s. He has no kids of his own. That I'm going to make you a great nation. That's why I think in one sense it's almost more surprising, not that God revealed himself to Abraham, it's probably more surprising that Abraham listens. Abraham follows him. He, he takes his wife, he takes his nephew, and they leave and they go on this journey, not really knowing where God is calling them to go. They don't stop until, until God says so. Now, Abraham's life, if you're familiar with the story of Genesis, is filled with a lot of ups, these moments where his faith is just blazing like a sun, just admiration upon admiration of his obedience. It's also filled with head-scratching failures. Like, how could you do that? That's the story of Abraham's life. But through it all, his belief, his trust in God's promise never wavered. One of the things that's not really clear as we read through Genesis is how many years of silence there are in Genesis. God calls Abraham to follow him, that he's going to make him a great nation when he's about 75. And there are years, even decades, where God is silent, where God doesn't speak to him, God doesn't reveal himself. He at last has a child over two and a half decades later. And in the midst of all of that silence... Abraham keeps trusting that God will keep his promises. 
This is most clearly seen in Genesis chapter 15. God reveals himself to Abraham one night after years of silence. He reveals himself to Abraham. He, he basically says, hey, Abraham, it's, it's been a while. I, I haven't forgotten my promise to you. And just to prove it, I want you to step outside. Step outside, look up at the sky, and if you can see all of those stars, if you could count every single one of those stars, I would tell you that, hey, you know what? I'm still committed to my promise to you, and I will give you children more than all of those stars up in the sky. And how does Abraham respond? Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. It's a, fa- a phrase Paul picks up on in Romans chapter 4. Abraham is considered righteousness or righteous in God's eyes, not because of his works, not because of, of anything that he has done, but because he trusts God. He trusts that God is going to do what God has said that he is going to do. And that's what saving faith looks like. We just look at the example of Abraham. And Paul picks him up. He said, hey, you want to know what it looks like to believe and trust in God for his righteousness? How do you get justified through faith? Look at Abraham. Even when his life, his circumstances are screaming the opposite of everything that God has promised. He trusts that God is the type of God who keeps his promises. Romans chapter 4. He did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That last verse there, that's the definition of faith. Verse 21, being fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. Faith is this wrestling, it's this question that we have to answer. It's it's not this nebulous quality, uh, uh, you just got to have faith, whatever that means. Like our culture always talks about faith in that regard. No, that's, that's not faith. Faith is this trust that God has made promises. And we don't see those promises coming to fruition. They haven't been fulfilled yet. And yet he's the type of God who keeps his promises. That's the faith of Abraham. That's the faith that saves us. It's the faith that's necessary for the gospel. It's not a faith that has no doubts. It is a faith that's not powerful. It's not confident necessarily. It just looks at God and says, you know what? You seem like the type of God who is worth trusting. In the midst of all the impossibilities of Abraham's life, Abraham almost a hundred. Sarah isn't all that far behind him. In the midst of, of what seems to be decades of silence from God, in the midst of all that, he says, you know what, God, you're, you're the type of God who's worth trusting. Romans chapter 4 
21 and 22, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. You want to know what faith looks like in your life? Faith is, is the exact same thing. Saying, you know what? My circumstances, they may not make sense right now. I look at what God has promised in Scripture, and, and I look at my life, and there's this huge disconnect between the two of them. But this God, he seems like he's a God worth trusting. He seems like he's the type of God who keeps his promises. And that's what Christmas is. For 400 years, from the time of the prophet Malachi until we get to the beginning of the New Testament, 400 years, God is silent. God has made all of these promises to his people, and yet none of them are coming to pass. And yet through it all, God doesn't just speak. When he shows up, he shows up in the person of his son. He enters into this world broken, ruined by sin so that he can give himself up as an offering to save us from that sin so that he can keep his promise. That's how committed God is to keeping his promises. Now, thousands of years later, when it feels like we can't go on, where uh, we just, <laughs> life is just, it's just awful. We see, and we can look back, that Christmas calls us to do exactly that, to look back and remember that this God is a God worth trusting. The God of Christmas is a God worth trusting. He's a God who keeps his promises, even when it doesn't look like it. He will keep his promises. That's how the text ends in Romans chapter 5. It's a reminder that if God is a God worth trusting, and he is, and if God has made a way for us to enter into his presence through the sacrifice of his son, which he, he has, then we have hope. More specifically, Christians, or Christmas gives us this present hope in a, or because of, a future glory. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Christmas is a story of hope because the gospel message is a story of hope. It's the anchor that allows us to rejoice even when our circumstances lead to suffering. It's not because we're masochists and we just love suffering in our lives. It's because we have hope in the future glory of God. What's more, Paul, in verse 5, he reminds us that we've been given the Holy Spirit. 
as a reminder of that hope that awaits us. In Ephesians, Paul tells us that that he describes the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. The Holy Spirit within us is the down payment of what God is going to give us in full. It's the assurance that he does keep his promises. In this world that is, is falling down all around us, the Holy Spirit increasingly helps us to see and to look at the new creation, especially in our suffering, especially in our hardship. Christmas reminds us that we have a present hope because of a future glory that awaits each and every one of us. Paul doesn't stop there. That would be good enough, wouldn't it? But Paul doesn't stop there. This present hope in a future glory isn't just for when circumstances of our lives, things that are outside of our control, are hard. It's also an anchor for us when we feel like we disappoint God. When we feel like we aren't measuring up to his standards. When we sin. When we struggle with the same old sins over and over and over, and we're going on decades now, and we can't shake these. I love the way Dana Ortland describes what many of us feel in his book, Gentle and Lowly. It's one thing to believe that God has forgiven all our old failures that occupied us before the new birth. It's another thing to believe that God continues just as freely to put away all our present failures that are, uh, that are after the new birth. Perhaps as believers today, we know God loves us, but if we were to more closely examine how we actually relate to the Father moment by moment, many of us tend to believe it is a love infected with disappointment. That he loves us, but it's a flustered love. We see him looking down on us with paternal affection, but with slightly raised eyebrows. How could they still fall short after all that I have done for them? And to that hard attitude, the rest of Romans chapter 5 through verse 11 answers and, and gives us hope. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Notice that three times here, Paul refers to the win of Christ saving us. What you were like when Jesus saved you. Verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So God doesn't wait to to start his rescue plan once you start getting your act together. He doesn't 
wait for you to prove yourself as someone who is serious about God this time, who, who's really actually going to try hard to follow him before he sends his son to die in your place. God doesn't wait until you are open to the idea of a God who we have to submit to, that we have to obey before he steps into human history. He doesn't, he doesn't wait until you're strong. He doesn't wait until you're, you're showing promise and potential. No, while you were still weak, while you were still a sinner, while we were still his enemies, Christ died for us. And when we fall short, and when we sin, we can think that God has just given us this this short leash, and the only thing that's preventing us from getting abandoned by God is is the fact that that God, he's he's a God who, who keeps his promises, and he's made a promise, and so he's going to keep it, but he's not going to like it. He's going to do it with gritted teeth. And here's the beautiful hope of verses 6 through 11, that God has loved you at your worst. He loved you when you were a sinner. He loved you when you were his enemy. He loved you when you were weak. He's loved you at your worst. He's not going to stop loving you now. John Flavel, a theologian from several centuries ago, he put it this way. As God did not at first choose you because you were high, he will not forsake you because you are low. That's the beauty and majesty of Christmas. God didn't choose you first because you were high. He didn't come to save you because you were high and mighty and majestic. And now that you are low, his love for you will remain. No matter what comes our way, impossible circumstances or the same old sin over and over and over, Christmas gives us present hope. It gives us present hope in a future glory of what awaits each and every one of us who have faith in Jesus, who trusts that he's a God worth trusting, that he keeps his promises. And that's this text. But it's not the end of the story. The story started before the crunch of the apple in the garden goes down through the ages to this babe who is in the manger. One day will culminate in the new creation. I once, I said at the beginning of our time that Advent here is just this word that that means preparation or or refers to this time of preparation for for his coming, for his, his return and this arrival. That we look at his first coming to prepare ourselves for his second. And that's what this text is about. In Jesus, we have been given the gift of a future with God. The gift of a future with God. For those who believe, for those who trust that this is a God worth trusting, that this is a God who keeps his promises, that we have been made right with God. For those who, who need hope, this is the message of this text.
Is it the message for you? Are you one of those who believes that God is a God worth trusting? That he's a God who keeps his promises in spite of your circumstances, in in spite of your, your hardships and failures? That he can love you at your worst and he won't stop loving you? At Christmas, we see the gift of a future with God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the message of this passage and just how glorious, beautiful it is. Thank you. Thank you for justification. Thank you for faith. Help us to increasingly see you as a God who is worth trusting. If there's someone in here, someone watching online this morning who, who hasn't believed, who, who hasn't placed their trust in you as a God who, who keeps his promises, God, I pray that right now that that would be true. That they would see you in spite of their circumstances that may scream otherwise that you are a God worth trusting. And that you delight to bring sinners into your kingdom. For those of us who are a part of your family because of what Jesus has done, God, I ask that you would help us increasingly, in spite of of everything that's going on in our lives and, and all of the things that may tell us otherwise, that we would see you as someone who keeps his promises. And that as we get closer to Christmas, just... Five days left. God, we would use these days as a time of preparation to prepare our hearts for your return. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.